Hello, and welcome to show number 2402 of Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. And this week we have another special episode where Glenn Gordon, software fellow at Freedom Scientific and host of the FSCast podcast, agreed to interview Nancy about her career and her life and how we met and her experience as a female scientist. So, Glenn, welcome back this week and take it away. Well, thanks to both of you for inviting me back for a second week, this time to interview the other physicist in the family. So, Nancy Goodman Torpy, welcome to Eyes on Success, but on the other side of the microphone. Thank you so much, Glenn Gordon. This is going to be so much fun. Am I correct that when you started studying science, it was at a time when girls weren't very commonly encouraged to do so? Girls were very much discouraged from doing science, not wanting to reveal too much about myself, but I was born in 1952. And in the 50s and 60s and 70s, We were a very rare breed, and you had to put up with a lot of social pressures in the opposite direction in order to succeed in science. And how did you know you were interested? Whatever level of math I was learning at school, I just loved it. To the extent that my poor mother, who hated math, complained until she died that when I was in grade school, if I was ever homesick, I would make her make me math problems to work on, to entertain me. And she hated it, and I loved it. And as the years went on, math got less and less tangible. We started talking about numbers of dimensions that not only exceeded three, which is what we have in real life, but they weren't even integers. And to me, that was just too nebulous, and I really wanted to be connected to the real world. And in my view, physics was a way of applying mathematics to the real world and having a real impact um, and real understanding of what was going on around me. And how about your teachers in those early years? I assume there were some who were supportive and a bunch who weren't? My teachers actually were terrific. Most of them, I would say, were neutral. They're like, okay, here's a kid who's interested in math. I had a couple of teachers at each level of my education who were really special to me. My high school math teacher was Anthony DeLuna. He was also the coach of the math team. And my physics teacher, Jim Blake. He was also the coach of the debate team. So I knew the two of them pretty well. And they were very encouraging, very supportive. They didn't care I was a girl. And they made that very clear. And then my undergraduate advisor, Louis Green, and my PhD advisor, Helmut Fritschi, they also really didn't care I was a girl. They barely noticed And, you know, a couple of specific instances come to mind. I had had a summer job when I was in college working with my high school math department. And when I graduated college, I came back in 
to visit the math department one day. And I was, oh, hi, how are you? Big grin on my face. And Mr. DeLuna turned to the other assembled math teachers and said, go ahead, ask her the big question. And one of them says, when are you getting married? And he didn't even wait for me to respond. He said, no, that's not the right question. The right question is, ask her where she's going to graduate school. And he really got me. He knew that at 22, going to graduate school was the next thing I was going to do. When you were leaving high school and it was time for college, I assume your grades were impeccable. Was it hard to get into an academically rigorous program as a woman? So I finished high school in 1970, and that was just as many universities and colleges were starting to go co-ed. I had my heart set on Amherst, and they didn't go co-ed for several years after that. So, you know, it was at a time when your gender determined your choices. So I wound up at an all-women's college, Bryn Mawr, that had a partnership with an all-men's college down the road, Haverford, because they kind of acted almost like two branches of the same school. So you could take courses at either one. You could attend social events at either one. And so I made that work for me. Was Bryn Mawr encouraging to women? I think they had an attitude of, we're going to provide a safe environment for these women so they can flourish without being in the general population. And what was your experience there? My experience was that I was not crazy about the faculty in the Bryn Mawr Physics Department, and I wanted to take physics at Haverford, but there was an arrangement that you couldn't major in a department at Haverford if it also existed at Bryn Mawr. But thanks to my friend Claire, who was a year or two ahead of me, she made it so that you could major in a department at Haverford if it did not exist at Bryn Mawr. And I had two choices, studio art, which wasn't a choice, and astronomy. And the faculty there was terrific. I showed up, I said, can I major in astronomy? And they said, sure, we'd love to have you. And they were very supportive and encouraging, as was the physics department at Haverford. You know, I walked into the class and they're like, oh, another student treated me the same as the guys. When you were going through school, were there any women who you could point towards that you said, yeah, I want to be like them. They, they've done it. It makes it obvious to me that I can do it. Oh, my gosh. The entire physics faculty at the University of Chicago at the time, which was, I don't know how many dozens of professors, there was one woman. And I actually had very little to do with her. You know, it gets back to all I wanted to do was be treated like everybody else. And I've had a lot of conversations with Pete because he was the only blind guy. And same thing, you know, you walk into the room and you just establish that you're to be taken seriously in spite of whatever other aspects that people might make a judgment based on. 
when you graduated from University of Chicago with a PhD, was your intent to start working right away? It would have been, but I thought it would be cool to spend a year abroad. And so I got myself a postdoctoral fellowship at one of the Max Planck Institutes in southern Germany. And a fellowship to support me doing that. That was the National Science Foundation Fellowship. And so with their support, I went over to Germany and I did research there. And, you know, that could only have been good for my career. I learned a lot and it looked good on my resume. But by the time I got there, I had already gotten a job offer from Xerox. So it really didn't matter. But um, that was great. Was the environment for women scientists different in Germany than it was in the U.S. at the time? No, it was a pretty similar situation. And I should comment that in physics, you get an awful lot of international mixing. So my thesis advisor in Chicago grew up in Germany the head of the research team in Germany grew up in Portugal. And then members of each research group from all over the world. So you don't get so much of a flavor of the home country because there's so much intermixing. What do you think that Xerox saw in you uh, that they offered you work? My thesis advisor was a really big shot in the field of amorphous semiconductors, and he took us all to scientific conferences as we were going through the program, and we had met many of the researchers from corporate research departments. I had given presentations on my work, so they were familiar with my work. They admired my advisor, so when he wrote me a good recommendation, that carried a lot of weight. I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but, you know, they thought I did good work, and they thought I'd fit in with the projects they needed work done on. Were you accepted up front? Overall, yes, but there were some people who made unwise comments so I showed up, and some guy looks at me and says, oh, you're Eva's replacement, because there had been one other young female physicist, and she had just left. And I'm like, no, actually, Eva was still here when I got my job offer. I am hardly her replacement. You know, and, and men had come and gone in the same time frame. Nobody said, oh, you're his replacement. It took a little while for me to build up a track record and, and establish credibility, but I think eventually I did. What at Xerox were you most proud of in terms of your work? You know, I think the most exciting day of my career was the day they made a product out of the technology that I was a project leader on. And there were several times in the months leading up to that, where that project was almost killed. And I personally intervened and said, no, this is a great technology. You can't kill the project. And when that started selling and making money for Xerox and it, you know, becoming 
usable by the world. That was just so exciting. And is it technology that us mere mortals who are not skilled in physics uh, have a hope of understanding sort of the quick summary of? I'm sure you can. Okay. So at the time, Xerox was making a highlight color printer, actually several at different speeds. So you could get black plus one color. And you had your choice of red or green or blue. And what we did was we developed just three more colors, cyan, magenta, and yellow, and then we blended them with the red, the green, and the blue, and that made the problem even harder because they would interact with each other. But then, instead of telling people, well, here, you can have this printer, it'll print in black plus your choice of three, it was black plus your choice of about 15. And so that provided more options. And this was about when, time-wise? This was maybe in the mid-1990s. Yeah, laser printers were really big and heavy back then. (laughs) Yeah, the last laser printer project I worked on, the thing was the size of a freight train. It was literally 23 feet long and 6 feet tall and several feet wide, And that was just the printer part. If you wanted to actually get paper in or paper out, you had to add on more feet of stuff to handle the paper. And what was special about that particular printer as compared to a laser printer that you could put on a table in your house? It was a whole lot faster. It could handle a lot more pages per minute and very high quality because we were selling these things into print shops to substitute for lithographic printers. And so the print quality had to be at least as good. And so my final assignment was I was exploring the limits of the human visual system in order to say, well, look, we're not going to be able to make it perfect But how far from perfect can it be before anybody can tell? And how much further from perfect can it be before anybody cares? And when you're spending a half a million dollars to buy a printer, those two answers are really close to each other. If you're buying a $100 inkjet thing for your desktop, people don't care as much. But We worked very hard to get the print quality to the level where nobody cared it wasn't quite perfect, which is really close to where nobody can tell that it's not quite perfect. It's funny because I immediately think of MP3 files because MP3 files are lossy audio. It's not the original, but they remove things that no one can hear or most people can't hear. Perfect analogy. I think Pete told the story in last week's episode that you met him very close to the time that you arrived at Xerox. Am I getting the time frame right? Oh, my gosh. I got there um, on a Monday. I would have met him that Thursday, but he was off at a dance camp in Cape Cod. So I didn't meet him until the following Thursday. And had you dealt with blind people before? 
You know, I had a surprising number of interactions with blind people, considering many people never meet anybody who's blind. There was an economics professor at Bryn Mawr who was blind. I had met a blind young man socially. There was a blind chemistry graduate student down the hall at the University of Chicago. I just met them. I'm like, you're a person. Okay, you can't see. That's irrelevant to our relationship. Turns out with Pete, it became relevant because, you know, we've been sharing a life together for the last 40 years. But Pete is very comfortable with his own blindness. And he puts other people at ease about it. I mean, obviously, he wasn't going to drive himself to work. So he got a carpool. It's like, okay, there's two or three things he can't do, but otherwise, like, don't worry about it. I give Pete most of the credit for how comfortable not only I, but everybody else he knows is with his blindness. I know that Pete, over his career, was profiled a lot. Were you profiled in publications during your career? Not so much, but there was one exception to that. So I had been at Xerox for just a couple of years. And one day, out of the blue, I'm sitting at my desk. It was before we had caller ID. So I didn't recognize that it was a phone number that I would have ignored. So I answered the phone. And it was somebody saying, hi, this is so and so from Cosmopolitan magazine. We're doing an article about married couples working in the same place. Would you like to be part of it? And I figured, when was the next time someone from Cosmopolitan Magazine was going to call me up and offer to put me on the pages of their magazine? And I said, of course, we'd love to. I read the article, and you guys were definitely the tamest of all the people they talked about. Yeah, we recognized that. We did not do anything that you might have expected to see in that magazine. I'm curious how the two of you balanced your passion for physics and at the same time your love for your family and needing to go home and take care of family things without feeling like you were somehow shirking your work responsibilities. Because we were committed to each other and our kids. And so we would get up early, get to work in the morning, get the kids ready for school, and then go to work and work as hard as we could for the time we were there. And then we actually wound up with a nanny because it was so hard to find decent daycare situations at the time. Our kids were born in the 1980s. These days, that's a lot easier. And so if anybody asked either of us to stay late, we were like, sorry, I need 24 hours notice because I need to give the nanny notice, I can't just show up an hour late. And people respected that, even though most of them had a partner at home dealing with the house and the kids and the whole smash. You know, we just said, like, I'll stay as late as you want, but you have to give me 24 hours notice. When your kids were growing up, what were the bonding activities that you all did together? I mean, I think we just kind of hung out as a family. We did a lot of things, all four of us together. 
we have a daughter and a son, and our daughter is really into music and visual arts. And so Pete and she spent a lot of time over the piano together. And our son is really into sports and playing. And we'd go out front and, you know, Brian wanted to play catch. Well, that's fine. Pete had a stronger arm than me, but he couldn't receive the ball when Brian would throw it back to him. So Pete would throw, Brian would catch, Brian would throw it back, I would catch. I finally started wearing a baseball mitt because the kid got so strong it hurt when I had to catch the ball. But we just did a lot of things as a family together, you know, going to playgrounds, we did vacations in the Adirondacks, we'd hike, swim, canoe. When you decided to retire... Was there this niggling voice in the back of your mind saying, am I going to still feel accomplished and worthwhile? That was a huge question. Xerox one day offered an early retirement package that Pete and I were both eligible for, which was the first one we were ever eligible for. And we're like, well, we need to think about this. And they gave us six weeks to make the decision. So as you can imagine, being a couple of physicists, the first thing we did was we developed an elaborate spreadsheet, see if we could afford it. And once we figured out we could afford it, then we had to address the bigger questions, the important questions. And the first question was, well, if I've been identifying myself as a research scientist and I give that up, what will be my identity? And they didn't really give us long enough to figure out that answer. And this is where we really broke with expectations and tradition. But we really had to take on faith that we would find other rewarding things to do and other ways of defining ourselves. And what those were have changed Year after year after year, you know, what we were doing our first year in retirement is very different from what we were doing this year. But we've managed to find things that we feel good about doing. My wife, Jan, and I have spent a certain amount of time with the two of you when we were all living in upstate New York. And as couples go... And the kinds of things that you do together, you just seem particularly well-suited to spend lots of time together and do things like hiking and uh, working on this radio show, for that matter. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me that you would notice that. Yeah, we spend a lot of time together. Pretty much everything is a joint venture. You know, Pete plays the piano without me. I work in the garden without him. But we do an awful lot of stuff together. And we enjoy it. Did you ever think that you would be doing a radio show for 12 years? 13. Sorry? My math isn't what it used to be. Um, no. In fact, when we started the show... We did our first retrospective after six months. We weren't convinced we'd make it through the year. So it's as surprising to us as it is to anybody else. 
you were not an audio editor when you started doing this. Do you find you like that process? It's been a learning experience. You're right. I knew nothing about audio editing. And I believe it was you who commented after a couple of years that I had gotten better at it, which I really appreciated. Because I had done a lot of image processing, but that's the visual. And the tools are very different, and the effects are very different. And fortunately, I enjoy learning because I've had to learn a whole lot of stuff in order to do my part of making this show happen. You know, and Pete learned other things to make his part of making the show happen. It's really a team effort. And is it a natural division of, of tasks or did you sort of have to negotiate over time? I think it kind of evolved over time. We started doing things one way and it's kind of, well, this is easier for me. I'll do it. This is easier for you. You do it. And then we each trust each other to do work up to our own standards which are very high, frankly. So if you're going to work with a partner, it's really nice to have that trust built in. But as they say, you know, trust but verify. We each check the other one's work at every step of the way. So whether it's processing the audio or posting the podcast on the web or even writing those little summaries that we generate for every show. Whoever did it, the other guy reads it or listens to it or checks it over and makes sure it's good. For people who are new to the world of interviewing, do you have any suggestions as to how to do it well? You know, I've never really tried to quantify what we do. One thing that we've learned is try to keep it as a back and forth. Don't let any one question, and some people make their questions really long, or answer run more than a minute or two. Because then it gets to be like somebody's droning on. People don't have that kind of attention span. They like to hear it broken up. Interact, have fun, laugh occasionally. You know, it's a conversation. Nancy, thank you very much for trusting me enough to interview you for the podcast. And I hope you're not, you know, <laughs> running away with second thoughts afterwards. Thank you for agreeing to do this interview. I, I think it's going to come out terrific. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Well, thank you again to Glenn Gordon for agreeing to interview me, having already interviewed Pete. And now that I've heard it, it did come out terrific. Agreed. And if you're looking for the FSCast podcast, you can go to the Freedom Scientific website at freedomscientific.com, and there's a link to the FSCast podcast. If you have questions for us, you can send an email to host at eyesonsuccess.net. 
And of course, we'll have that information in the show notes associated with this episode, which is episode 2402 at our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for today's show. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about the Echo Heart Rate app for iOS. Using voiceover to monitor one's heart rate while running on a noisy treadmill wearing an Apple Watch and noise-canceling AirPods is difficult. We talk with Alex Wiener, a developer at PK Fitness, about how he added Siri commands to provide on-demand speech feedback in their Echo Heart Rate app, as well as about their Fat Burn app. And I'm off to jump on my treadmill, but until next week, we'll see you then. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.